Hey, Church of the Valley family. Excited to be with you on this Easter Sunday as we are going to unpack the most important event in all of human history. It's a pretty weird Easter, isn't it? Celebrating the most important event while quarantined in our homes and possibly the most far-reaching pandemic in all of human history. And even though instead of putting on our Easter best, if you will, and sitting in the same church building, we're possibly in our pajamas. In our own homes, we get to be reminded and celebrate the greatest moment in all of history when this God-man, Jesus Christ, after being unfairly tried and convicted of being a blasphemer, walked out of the grave three days after hanging on a cross for the sins of mankind. And on this day, we celebrate the fact that he didn't just defeat death, he defeated the hold that sin has over many. The hold that sin had was that we were unable to come into the presence of the Lord no matter how much good we think we could do or how much we attempt to abstain from evil. We were completely powerless to be in relationship with God because of His holy perfection and our sin nature. But what did God do? He made it so we had the opportunity to become His people. But that would only happen through God doing the heavy lifting, only by God coming to his creation, only by God trading his life for ours. The amazing rescue plan did not end with a dead prophet because that would have just made Jesus a martyr. But Jesus isn't a martyr. He is Lord. He is Savior. And we know this by the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually took place. It is the stamp of the validation that his life being given for ours was the resurrection from the dead, which is to make it so that we can partake into relationship with God through his only son's death and resurrection. Listen, the resurrection is the linchpin to Christianity. If it happened, then Christianity is true. If it didn't happen, then Christianity is false. It all hinges on this. In fact, we as Christians put all our Easter, ba- Easter eggs in the resurrection basket, pun intended. It's not just something that we hope is true. We have hope only because it's true. Without the resurrection, we are still stuck in our sin. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are unable to have any chance of eternal life. But here comes Jesus, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. So I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 14, and then we're going to backtrack a little. But Paul writes, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. This verse personally hijacked my eternity. When I was 20 years old, I was what I considered an antagonistic atheist. I read this verse after learning all that I could about different religions and took a pretty cynical look at Christianity. And I read this verse and thought from a logical perspective, if I'm going to write a book and get you to believe something that I know isn't true, I would never ever give the cornerstone of the argument against my agenda and my belief within the book that I'm writing. But what does Paul do here? Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but what does he do here as he's writing to the church in Corinth? What's he say that our faith is founded on? He says, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't happen, then we ought to pack it up. We should stop trying to propagate this old wives' tale if Jesus didn't resurrect from the grave. In fact, Tim Keller says it this way, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that Jesus said. 
If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise, Christian, your faith is futile. It is worthless. It is placebo. It is without effect. Your faith is unnecessary. It is unqualified, but only if Jesus has not risen from the dead. Your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins, even though you thought you found the way out. Turns out you didn't if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and all of those who have died before us, all of them in their dying faith, it was worthless for them too if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Look at what Jesus tells his disciples before his death. He says in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, because he was teaching his disciples, Mark writes, he said to them, as Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. If Jesus didn't rise, then this which he claimed in Mark 9, if he didn't rise, it would not take place. It was incorrect. Not only was this no God-man at all, he was a false prophet and Jesus was a liar. But what if, think about this for a second, what if Jesus did rise from the dead? Because Paul goes on to talk about what it means if he rose from the dead. But do we just take Paul's word for it? Listen, most of us don't. But at the beginning of this chapter, Paul knew that as he shares a pretty compelling argument to the church in Corinth. So begin with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. He says this to them. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you've received and which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Paul begins by telling his hearers and readers that this is the message that he's preached since they have known him, and it is what they've received, it is what they have believed in, and that their identification is placed in belief that the message of the gospel is true. They no longer identify themselves by their works or their past reputation, but by the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These people who had heard this had either trusted this message with all of their heart or they hadn't at all. And their belief was in vain if they hadn't truly believed it because they acknowledged it, but they didn't trust Jesus as their Savior. So Paul lays out the message that they heard and they received. And he says in verse three, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What Paul had received by meeting Jesus alive after Jesus' death on the cross, after Jesus' burial, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus came to Paul in a vision and he personally got to speak. Paul got to speak with the resurrected Savior on the road to Damascus. And what he learned from Jesus, he then passed on all over the continent of Asia Minor. And this was of first importance. This gospel message, which is about to lay out what we believe is of first and foremost importance. Christians can disagree. They can debate on a lot of secondary issues. They can have differences of opinion on church structure. They can have differences of opinion on interpretation of the Bible, on methodology, on modes of worship. But the thing that bonds believers across the globe is this gospel 
message that Paul lays out right here as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Scripture, your Bible, speaks a lot to this truth, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Let me show you. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he says, He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul writes and he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John, the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, writes the book of John, and in the most popular, most well-known verse in all of history, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes, In verse 21, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of these verses say or they allude to the fact that there would be a great exchange between God and man, and God would trade his life for the lives of sinners like you and I. But these were not specifically what Paul was referencing. He was pointing out the fact that in the Old Testament, written prior to Jesus' earthly ministry and death on the cross, it spoke about what the Messiah would need to accomplish in order for the sins of the world to be forgiven. He says in Isaiah 53, 3 through 6, the prophet Isaiah, speaking, being led by the Holy Spirit, writes this, 700 years before Jesus was even born to Mary, He says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took on our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he, verse 5, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to their own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was punished. So this was not, so you know, a plan B. This was not a reactionary plan. Jesus dying for the sins of the world was the plan because people had been infected with the sin nature and God decided to provide the cure in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Sin being paid for was always the plan since Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command and chose their own ways in the garden. Our hope is not in our ability to be moral. It is in the resurrected Savior who traded his life for ours. And then in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4, Paul goes on and he says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul goes on and says that he was buried. When Jesus hung on the cross, he had given up his spirit. His body hung lifeless. And then we read in John 19, verses 31 through 37, 
John writes, he says, now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be the special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead, that, and they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear and bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw this was giving his testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, John says, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another Scripture says, they will look on the one that they have pierced. So after this, after Jesus hung on the cross, after they did not have to break his legs because he had already given up his spirit, after the Roman soldier put the spear in his side and water and blood came out, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, who was secretly a follower of Jesus, and Nicodemus, the same Nick at night, if you remember in John 3, that Jesus was speaking with, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night, they came and they got Jesus' body after he died on the cross. And here's what it says in John 19, 38. It says, later, Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man earlier who had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, and taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen, and this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. See, this reminds us of what was spoken about hundreds of years prior to Jesus' death, 700 years prior in Isaiah 53 verse 9, where Isaiah says, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus hung between two thieves, where one admitted that they were getting what they deserved, but pointed out that Jesus had done nothing wrong. And then Jesus was placed in Joseph's tomb, a very rich man, according to Matthew chapter 27. So Jesus's burial was not just one that the New Testament spoke about. It was confirmed in the Old Testament as the Old Testament foreshadowed what was going to happen. And then he says in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 15, and that he was raised on the third day. Jesus' resurrection from the grave is the most important moment in all of human history. And if you believe it or not, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that death does not have final say in one's life. And yet as people search for immortality and yet tend to look any and everywhere other than to the one who physically rose from the dead. See, Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, once again, Paul is pointing to the Old Testament that foreshadowed that this would take place through the Messiah as David in the Psalms said, and Peter quoted that his body would not see decay in Psalm 16. 
because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. Psalm 16.10. So this is what is in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. But we as Christians do not believe that the resurrection happened just because the scriptures say that it happened. Listen, if you want to know why I personally believe in the resurrection of Jesus, it has far less to do, at least originally, with what the scriptures said, and it has so much more to do with what history tells us. Listen, I was a pompous 19-year-old who believed that the purpose of this life was to live fast, die young, and accumulate as much stuff as possible. And I saw people who were raised religious as arrogant individuals and ignorant individuals who were missing out on the pleasures of this life because they believed in fairy tales. But in a spirited debate with someone, they challenged me on what the Christian faith was, what it was supported by. And even though I had a pretty cultural understanding of a bunch of different opinions, he said it all hinged on the resurrection of Jesus Christ if it happened or not. So I figured, man, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. And so I jumped headfirst into attempting to discount and do away with the silly 2,000-year-old myth, and I read everything I could to find clues to how this ridiculous theory came into existence. I read other religious books, other texts, other origins about other cults and different faiths. And it wasn't until one day as I sat in a library reading a few different books and I had a copy of the Bible and I read that first verse that we started with, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, and it said, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. See, that moment when I read that verse, I believe it was God who spoke to me through that verse, but the Lord used that verse to eternally hijack my destination. I thought, if I'm going to create a book to get others to believe, I'm not going to put inside of it what the, arg- the best argument against the book is. And yet Paul wrote that if you do not believe in the resurrection, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is false. But as Paul was speaking to the Corinthians, as he was telling them that everything hinged on the resurrection If you're today wrestling watching this video and and you were told by a family member or friend, hey, you got to watch this because it's Easter, if you're going to argue against the faith of Christianity, you need to stop trying to discredit things that don't matter. You can argue about what hypocrites Christians are all day. You can argue about how we can't generally agree on most things. You can argue about the different understandings of church government and things like that. But Christianity is built based on the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is without merit. But it all leans into that. Did he rise from the dead or not? After the realization of the fact that the Bible actually says what you would need in order to disprove the entire faith of Christianity, I wanted to look at what kind of things were written, what kind of things were said about Jesus's supposed resurrection. So in verse 5, Paul says that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Peter, and then to the twelve. Jesus wasn't just alive and dead, and then a tomb was empty, because a tomb being empty, hear me, proves nothing. 
There are tons of explanations to why a person who was placed in a grave vacated that grave, but never ever have any of the explanations of why that person would come out of a grave ever be because of that own person's power coming out of that grave. But the arguments go something like this. See, the government probably had some fear that someone was going to attempt to steal Jesus' body, so they decided to go and take it themselves and place his body somewhere else so no one would think that he rose from the dead and then worship him. The problem with that fact is, or that, that argument to the facts, is that the government didn't want people to continue to proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah. And so by stealing the body, people's response would be similar to what it is, I guess. They might, may start to tell others that he rose but it would create this false belief that he, was, he wasn't actually who he said that he was, but the government didn't want this, so I don't think for one second that the government would steal the body. So then the argument becomes, then the disciples must have stolen the body, and here comes the most satisfactory reason that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. See, the Bible actually says this argument was created by the governing authorities. In Matthew chapter 28, right before the Great Commission, it says, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests and everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while he was asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Some conspiracy theorists believe that this was added to the Bible to cast doubt on the actual reality that the disciples stole the body. But this isn't realistic. This isn't realistic to believe that the disciples would steal the body and then start to proclaim that Jesus had risen from the dead because of the simple reality, the disciples were all martyred. They were all killed for their belief and proclamation that Jesus was alive. And you may be thinking right now, well, fanatics in almost every religion die for their cause, and that's true. But there's something that makes the disciples' belief significantly different and more trustworthy than those of any other faith and religion or cults that has died for their belief. And so I want you to hear this. If you're only paying attention to something, I hope I can get your attention because this is so important. Listen, people will die for a cause if they are convinced of it, but they won't voluntarily die if they are sure it isn't true. People will die for a cause if they are convinced of it, but they will not voluntarily die if they are sure that it is not true. And if the disciples simply stole the body and hid Jesus' body somewhere else, there is no chance ever that they would have given up their own lives, both physically and practically, to proclaim something that they knew was not true. Gary Habermas is an apologist. Apologist is someone who spends a bunch of time studying the facts and truth, trying to point out the realities that Scripture actually lines up with history. Gary Habermas is one of my favorite apologists. He writes tons of books on the resurrection, and this is one of my favorite quotes. He says it this way, there is an important difference between the apostles' martyrs and those who die for their beliefs today. Modern martyrs act solely out of their trust and beliefs that others have taught them. 
the apostles died for holding to their own testimony that they had personally seen the risen Jesus. Contemporary martyrs die for what they believe to be true. The disciples of Jesus died for what they knew to be either true or false. Peter found the empty tomb, and Jesus came to him, Peter, physically, and he went from a doubting denier to a bold proclaimer that when being put to death according to Roman history, Peter chose to hang upside down on a cross because he did not consider himself worthy of the same death as Jesus, his Christ. The rest of the 12 disciples all were martyred for their beliefs that Jesus was alive, not because anyone else convinced them of the story, but because they all had firsthand experience of the risen Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, Paul continues and he says, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. See, Jesus didn't discriminate and only show himself to friends or former followers. He was very public for 40 days as more than 500 people all at the same time were witnesses of Jesus' physical appearance. Some people want to argue that maybe people were hallucinating this. And that's fine if it's one person. If one person hallucinated seeing Jesus, they just sound crazy. But what happens when it's more than 500 people all at the same time? If 500 people see the same thing at the same time, that's not a hallucination, that's an event. And with hundreds and hundreds of people corroborating the same story, Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Let's, let's just make known that Jesus showed himself to many people, and becoming an apostle meant that you saw Jesus alive after he died, and then those apostles were sent to go and preach and proclaim the kingdom of God, and they helped plant churches and start the movement of the way, which we read in the book of Acts. And Jesus, as Paul states, appeared to James. Now, some could argue that he meant one of the two apostles who were named James, but he's already talked about the apostles. He's already talked about the specific people that have been following him. And I would contend that James is Jesus's half-brother. And it is the best argument against anyone who wants to argue against Christianity and wants to argue against the resurrection. See, the same James was not a believer, according to the Bible. In John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. But James grew up with Jesus. And eventually, we see after Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, James becomes the pastor elder of the early church in Jerusalem and writes a letter to the believers and begins it with this salutation. In James chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Okay, I need a, a participatory moment from all of you. Even though I won't be able to see you, I just want you to humor me in this moment. How many of you, as you're sitting watching this, running watching this, driving watching this, how many of you have siblings? I'll give you a second. Raise your hand. Okay? Raise your hand. Fantastic. Now tell me, what would your sibling have to do to convince you that they were God with skin? I rest my case. 
No further questions, Your Honor? The defense rests. Listen, the fact that James, who did not believe that Jesus was God, and not only stopped saying that he didn't believe, but started to follow and trust Jesus Christ and became a pastor of the early church when he grew up with Jesus, what would have to take place for him to know this? It would have to be the resurrection from the dead and James being a witness of it. But we have one more argument that Paul ends with, as he says in verse 8, as he's testifying to the truth of the gospel message, here's what he says, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul states that Jesus appeared to him, one who was not born and met Jesus early enough to become one of the 12, but practically became the 13th apostle as he was on the road to Damascus, and it was in a vision personally that he experienced Jesus and he talked with Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead. Paul was an enemy of all things Christianity, but something changed, and I don't think it could ever be expected that it was anything less than a dead man rising from the grave and appearing and proving and validating that he is Savior of the world. Paul was an antagonist, an enemy of Jesus Christ, and he was against the God of the Bible, and Paul, who had lived his life on the other side of God, even though he didn't know it, had this radical life change that can only be explained by running into the resurrected Jesus Christ, who proved once and for all that he was who he said that he was, that Jesus is God with skin. There's a lot that people believe about God that isn't biblical, but there is no belief at all in anything that matters without believing first and foremost that Jesus physically is alive, that he physically rose and he conquered sin and death and offers the gift to all of us who would believe. The death on the cross paid our debt. The resurrection is our receipt. And Jesus is as alive today as he was on the third day. And he sits at the right hand of the Father and will come back one day to judge the living and the dead. And we all get the opportunity to receive this gift that he offers. Or we can reject him. We can reject his work. And we can reject his salvation. Christianity has evidence on its side regarding the supposed resurrection of Jesus. It's not wishful thinking. It's not group think. It isn't a legend that picked up steam over thousands of years. A man who claimed he was God died on the cross willingly for crimes that he did not commit. His lifeless body was taken from the cross and placed in a rich man's tomb. Three days later, he was found in that tomb. Then people started to claim that they personally saw him physically alive as Jesus went around town. Some said that they spoke with him. Some said that they ate and touched him. And Jesus showed himself to people who knew him intimately before, to people who knew of him, and even people who were against him. The entire world was changed after this event that happened in the Middle East. And even though he came with a message of love that God so loved the world, he, God gave his only son and by giving up his life, men and women for thousands of years have had the opportunity to be adopted into the kingdom of God, not because of some teachings or because of some devotion of individuals, 
but all because Jesus died on a cross for the sins of the world and physically and victoriously rose from the dead. I believe that Christianity would not exist today if it were not for God rising from the dead. In fact, it shouldn't exist today unless the foundation of Jesus Christ is alive. I've spoken in different contexts for almost 20 years, and if you really get to the crux of my purpose, if you want to know my purpose for living, it is to raise awareness that Jesus is alive. This is Easter Sunday, 2020, when most of us are celebrating the most important event in all of human history in our own homes, secluded from friends and family that we'd normally be around on this holiday. But I want to point out that today may be the day that God makes known to you who He actually is. Christianity isn't about moral modification or memorization of a book. Christianity is about a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, who paid the debt of our sin and rose again. So today, I wonder if the resurrection of Jesus the truth about it, the facts about it, the realization about the resurrection of Jesus clicks for you. The arguments are there. The reality is the facts are on the side of Christianity. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul writes, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if this fact of the resurrection clicks, if this fact of the resurrection makes sense to you, if you personally now see Jesus not just as some religious leader, but as the Lord and Savior of your life, I'd encourage you to repent. Repent means to change direction, to change your mind about your sin, your sin and my sin, and what we to understand that we don't need to do a bunch to, to get God to love us. He loves us perfectly, and he proved that by sending his son to the cross and raising him from the dead. But we must repent by faith and trust that we're not going to live our lives for ourselves anymore. We're going to live our lives for Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And that is what Easter is about. It's about us understanding that because of his resurrection, we now have access to God, and because Jesus is alive, we will be alive even if we die, because we have hope in the one true God. Happy Easter. Love you guys.